0: If I had to title this sermon, I would title this sermon, The Substance Belongs to Jesus. And there are two scripture verses that are particularly relevant here. The first is Colossians 2:16 and 17, which read, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, Therefore no one is to act as your judge regarding food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ and ephesians 1:16 through 18 do not cease giving i do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation In the knowledge of him, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. When we first become Christians, we are very, very keen on the fact that Jesus went to the cross, suffered and died for my sins. The personal work of Jesus is very real to us. We talk about giving our lives over, not to some church, but to Jesus. That Jesus himself is our Lord and King. And the fact that he suffered for me is a very personal thing to me. That if I was the only person, that Jesus would have died, and he would have given himself for me. And you know, the... The most amazing part of that is that Jesus did personally die for us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, he says that Jesus gave his life not for us, but for me. And identified that Christ died for me. Now, in the beginning of our Christian walk, we are really centered then on the person of Christ. Now, the enemy is very uncomfortable with us being there any time we're near Jesus he's uncomfortable he doesn't like us coming to church he doesn't like us having conversations that talk about Jesus he doesn't like us picking up the bible and reading about Jesus but Jesus was such a consummation of everything in the scripture it's so important that we recognize that in all things he is the substance So we shared about pictures of eating food, and I think that's pretty clear, that a picture of eating food isn't the same as eating food. And knowing about Jesus or seeing a representation of Jesus is only a faint look at what Jesus is really like. And in John 17, 3, Jesus described heaven as being distinguished from the walk that we're living here by saying To know the Father and the Son is eternal life. Now, the enemy is always trying to play this down. Uh, We're about to go into the Christmas season. I'm just looking at Barbara, thinking Barbara has had uh, 70 years of Christmas seasons anyway. Are you 70 yet, Barbara? You might be 70. So there, she's seen a lot of Christmas seasons. You've heard the Christmas story. Oh, I know that the shepherds came here. Oh, I know about the star. I know about, about. And God is always trying to take us from about, that is knowing about him, to knowing him. And Jesus would make all sorts of statements about how that was important. You know, in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they that testify of me, and still you will not come to me that you might have life. Now the Scriptures were the most important thing that the Jews had. They would refer to the Scriptures over and over. They would have a special reading. There was a special way to do it. Only certain people could get up and do it. And Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And what do the scriptures do? The scriptures testify of me and say, come to the Messiah that you might have life. But instead of obeying the scriptures and coming to the Messiah, you stay away from me. And Jesus made a big deal of that. And the Jews who were obsessed with what works do I have to finish To make sure that I enter into heaven, at least the ones that believed in heaven. What works must I finish? Asked them the same thing. They asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may be working the works of God? Tell us what to do. Now think about how you might answer that question. Uh, There's a lot of people that would answer that question and say, well, these are the works of God. Well, you need to, you know, make sure you help out the poor. The sick, you need to visit them and help them as much as you can. You need to take a sizable portion of what you make, 10% or so, and give it to God for his purposes. You need to clean up your mouth so you don't talk like trash. And they would list out a whole number of things and say, if you do these works, you'll be doing the work of God. But this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is the work that God asks of you that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, the word believe in the scripture means to wholly adhere to. Wholly adhere to. And when Jesus was talking about believing in him, he was talking about more than an intellectual acknowledgement. He was talking about committing ourselves. In many other places in the scripture, Jesus describes this as abiding in him, especially in John 15. And he says, abide in me, believe in me, and abide in me. But he said, if you do that, you'll be doing the work of God. Now, this is totally contrary to the way the Jews understood the world, or the way most of us understand the world. Because Jesus said, if you abide in me, special things will happen. And in John 15, he says, If you abide in me and I abide in you, then you can ask what you want and it shall be done. Now, there are a number of Christians that want to skip the part of if you abide in me and I abide in you. And they want to go right to the part of you can ask whatever you want and it'll be done. But Jesus on purpose put that in front. He meant for the normal Christian life to be totally given over to him. Now, this, was when, this is the times, if you read in the Scripture, that you're kind of amazed at how much emphasis Jesus put on this. He would say to the disciples multiple times, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Especially Matthew 12, 42, um, Jesus talks about that somebody greater than Solomon is here, talking about himself. When the woman met him at the well, she described in John four twenty-five and 26, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus answered her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus declared, I am the Messiah that you're looking for. I am the one who's more special than Solomon in all of his glory. And he said that he who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. It will be a natural process, just like the branch that abides in the vine naturally produces fruit. And he finished that sentence by saying, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this enormous emphasis... On the Lord the person of the Lord being the Messiah the purpose of our life being to abide in him personally is constantly diluted by the acts of the enemy so the first thing he certainly doesn't want to happen is he doesn't want people to get saved and forgiven of their sins He certainly does not want people to repent and get their sins forgiven and be born as a child of God and born into the family of God. But if he's lost you to that, his next emphasis and is his continual emphasis is to dilute the importance of Jesus in your life and to substitute and deflect you from having a deep relationship with Jesus. Now, one of the big things that he does is to say, you already know about Jesus. Leah, my goodness, I've watched you since you were two years old. You know all these stories. If I said Zacchaeus, you go, he was short. He was in a tree. He came down to see Jesus. I know that story. If I was to say the woman who issued blood, Leah would go, oh yeah, she touched Jesus' robe. He was healed. I know these things. I've got 2,762 sermons in me. I know these things, not to mention Bible school. And my mom pounded on me to learn these verses. I know this stuff. I'm done. I'm really good at that. But Jesus went on to... But the thing that makes heaven different than here is that we know him, and we know him in fullness. So there is a knowing of Jesus that is way beyond the first step, of having our sins forgiven. That is literally the first step. Now Helen and I've been married a long time. I'm trying to count the years, can't quite do it. We're coming up to 50. Here I think 48 years, something like that. And I knew Helen decent when we got married. I'll just say I knew her decent amount. But what I know of Helen now compared to when we got married doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. 48 years of knowing Helen, I know her a whole lot more. Now, the Lord is much bigger than that. And he made all these statements to let us know he was much bigger than that. You remember when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was so upset because Lazarus had died, and she said to Jesus, if you had come, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, well, he will live again. And she said, I know he will come back and be resurrected again. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Now, Leah, if you had to get up with your 2,762 sermons behind you and explain that phrase, I imagine it would be tough. It's very tough. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, not I bring people back to life. That's not what he said. He said, I am. Am the resurrection now if you're like me when you read that verse you go That's hard to understand. Let's get on with the details. We're just about to go into jerusalem But when his disciples talked to him and he said i'm going to have to go somewhere You're not going to be able to follow me. They said lord. Where are you going that we can't follow you? And he said you know the way and they said well, how in the world could we know the way? If we don't know where you're going could you have been a disciple? I could have been a disciple And Jesus came back and said, get on Google Maps, head north 32 miles, then east 42, get on highway 316. And No, he didn't say that. Jesus said, I'm the way. I am the way. Well, what does that mean? I am the way. And he followed it with, and I am the truth. And he followed that with, and I am the truth. The life. And most people read over that and go, well, that's good. Now let's go on. But that's deep. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Well, if you're like me, I would go, those are hard verses. Let's skip over those and go on. But that's what he meant. There was to be such an abiding of ourself in the Christ and Christ abiding in us, that we were, as it is spoken, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, totally consuming him as he's totally in us. Jesus would say things like, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, I hate to tell you, Barbara, but the words that I speak to you are pretty much words. But when Jesus speaks, the words that he speaks are spirit and life. What does that mean? But Jesus is life, and everything that emanates from him is life. And we understand that about this little teeny weeny much. But it's exciting because that's the place for us to go. Now, I hate to tell you, but if I was in charge of um, entertainment in heaven, I think in about 10,000 years, everybody would be thoroughly bored. I'd be totally out of things to do. (coughs) Even if I carried Hickory House to heaven with me, I couldn't entertain people and do all these things that they want done. We would be bored in heaven. Just the thought that you don't get to sleep in heaven has bothered me. I need sleep in a serious way, much more than I needed it 10 years ago. But you don't sleep in heaven. And what is this thing about Jesus and the Father being the light? So there's no darkness. Well, how can they be the light? Where's the shadows? It's different. It's altogether different than the way we are here. Jesus and the Father are the light. There is no night. There's no tears. There's no grieving. There's no pain. Something that Helen will particularly like, every joint feels good. There is no problem. Jesus said that we would receive a body like his body, like his resurrected body. His resurrected body was one cool thing. I mean, people would be in a room and the scriptures would say the doors are shut and Jesus would appear. In his resurrected body, he could go through walls. However, he went down by the Sea of Galilee and ate fish. Now, in my limited way of thinking, you can either go through walls or eat fish, but you can't do both. What happens to the fish? Do you see? But that's not a limitation at all. We're headed into a body like that. And the fullness of God will be known. The scripture says we will know as we have been known. We will see God. There was a particular testimony. I showed this to Helen that was on YouTube. That was this woman who had been, uh, had bad sexual abuse up through the age of 12 probably from 5 to 12. It was a real sad story. And had concluded that God either wasn't there or she was so crummy that God didn't love her. And that was her conclusion. God either isn't there or he looks at me and says, you're so crummy, I don't love you. Can you imagine that? The woman bounced a couple of times into church, not really going to church at all, and then got really ill with something and was on the operating table and died. And when she died, she described this really good, like most people describe heaven, and say, well, you don't have the words. I can tell you that it was beyond superlatives that we use, but you don't have the words. They would describe the peace and the love is totally penetrating them, I and you can't get enough, and yet it's all around you. And she met Jesus, and she remembers thinking in her mind, I want to say, why was it that I went through such a time of pain in my early life. But instead of saying that, she said, what I heard coming out of my mouth was, why didn't I do more for you? Do you see the difference? When you come into his presence, it transcends all the way of thinking that we normally think. The Bible says his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but in general we don't believe it. We keep telling God, come down within my ways and within my thoughts and interact with me. But he says my ways and thoughts are higher than your ways and thoughts. And they are higher, and it's a good thing that they are higher. But we commonly bring that down. Now. It was the same thing, and I know Tiffany was sharing on this a month or so ago. At the end of the book of Job, Job had had advice from all his friends that completely conformed to our ways and our knowledge, and I agreed with several of his friends. One of his friends made complete sense to me. But in Job forty, but Job around Job thirty-eight, God starts answering Job, and how does God start answering Job? Well, if I was writing Job, I would want God to start out chapter 38 like this. Job, I have heard your prayer. I know you have been in terrible pain, and I know you have been unjustly treated, and you can't understand why that would go on now, and I'm here to comfort you and to bring you the comfort that you sincerely deserve. That's how I would have written Job 38. But God starts off and says, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? He starts explaining how the crocodile gets its food. Who feeds the lions and the birds? And furthermore, he does it for three chapters. He just goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, some of the best verses that we understand about creation come from Job 38, because God explains creation a whole lot more than he does in Genesis 1. And Job was a book written before Genesis. And so when Job was explaining stuff, when God explained stuff, he just went through this long thing. So when we get to Job 42, Tiffany, what I was looking for was Job to say something like, I just can't take it anymore. I can't respond to your statement. And I guess I'm just totally hopeless. That's what I thought Job was going to say. But you know, that's not what Job said. Job said, up until this time, I had heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore, do I repent in dust and ashes from everything he had complained about? All of those complaints were completely justified in my book. I am suffering terribly. I haven't done anything wrong. But he said, once I've seen you, God, it changes everything. Now, this is the place Satan wants to desperately keep us from. Because once you really abide in him, you begin to walk the way he walks. Did it ever bother you that Jesus would say, I just do what I hear my father saying? I and my father are one. Can you say that about Jesus? Well, I just do what I hear Jesus telling me to do. I just do what I know he wants me to do. Jesus and I are one. That's the way we're meant to be. So some of the tricks, and certainly tricks that apply in this room, are Satan doesn't like you coming to church, but if you're going to come to church, he still works to get the emphasis away from Jesus. And so what can he do? Sometimes you hear some people say something, and it sounds good, kind of sounds religious, but doesn't really have Jesus in the middle of it. And let me give you a few examples. Well, certainly in 1 Timothy, it says, in the last days, there will be people who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, and that those will be the religious people. They have a form of, Of godliness but deny the power Jesus jumped all over the scribes and Pharisees because they were heavy on words but their hearts were far from him and he said vainly do you worship me for your hearts are far from me and then he said to those same people who had a ton of religion You travel land and sea to make a single convert and then make them twice the child of hell that you are. Now, Eleanor, there is no way you can walk away from a sentence that says you are a child of hell feeling good. There is no way. And yet the people regarded the scribes and the Pharisees as venerated people. People who were to be recognized as walking in exactly the right way that deserved great respect. But Jesus said of them, you are whitewashed tombs. And it says, you do not guide, you yourself do not enter the kingdom and you keep others from entering in. So you see, this thing about Jesus was altogether at the very top. Religion couldn't replace it. Now, we're not going to come in here. I I hope nobody in here would be called a whitewashed tomb. I certainly don't think so. But this is what could happen to us and does happen to some people. You'll hear some people sometimes saying, well, I'm walking the walk of faith. I'm in this kind of step of my walk of faith. That doesn't sound bad. It's not bad if we understand what we're talking about talking about a walk of faith in Jesus. Not, I've done the 32 courses on having this most superior walk of faith. Watch me, I'm the one that knows how to do the walk of faith. That's not it. There's a walk of faith in Jesus. You see, Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, it says, For Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. If we're in the middle of a walk of faith that's a real walk of faith, it's a walk of faith in Jesus. Because when we are abiding in him, that's when we receive faith. That's when faith grows in us. Faith is not a separate thing dispensed by a vending machine where you amount enough of it to please God. No, faith comes from walking in Christ, and that's what grows your faith. Jesus is both the author and the finisher. And then some people say, well, I'm really working on being a disciple. Well, that phrase is okay, but it needs to be supplemented with a disciple of Jesus. You see, even Leah, when I say the word Jesus, everything's different. It's just all different. Just saying the word of Jesus, saying the word Jesus, it's a disciple of Jesus. Because, see, when you abide in Him, you are a disciple. You are a disciple. Now there're two sets of verses that says that God changes things inside of you that need to be changed when you abide in him. And one of the most important of those two verses is Philippians 2:13, which says, "For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." And one of the hardest things about abiding in Christ is our minds have had so much control of our life for so long, and you can ask Helen, this particular problem with me, that you want to be in control of the situation that's going on, that to turn it over to the Lord and say, it's yours, the way you decide to do it is the way we're going to do it, is not natural to us. We basically want God to give us three options and say you can do this, this, or this, and we choose one of the options and make it happen. But that's not the way that it works. We are to walk with him, and the Bible says that he will lead us, that the steps of the righteous man are ordered by the Lord. And he knows how to lead us into these places that we're supposed to do. And he knows what we're supposed to say. And in the Old Testament, it was over and over again, every hero in the Old Testament was a hero, not because they had knowledge, skills, and ability, but because God was with them. God was with them. And the great news of the New Testament was that now God is not only with them on the outside, but Jesus made way that his spirit could come and dwell within us so that we could be changed from the inside. And this verse in Philippians says the most marvelous thing. It says God works inside Leah to do two things, to change Leah's will and to change Leah's works. God works inside of us To change our will. So you might say, well, I've had a temper for 40 years, and when people really get mad at me, I just find this thing inside of me that wants to yell at them. And I let it out. The Bible says God can change your wants. He can change your will. So if we have something crummy in us, which we all do, God can transform that. And then it says he can change our works, and does. Not that he just can, he does. God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What a tremendous thing. So this is kind of like, um, uh, you know, God coming up to Helen and saying, Helen, I require this of you. And Helen goes, I haven't got the ability to do that. Well, you don't have to have the ability. Here's the ability. And that's exactly what he did when we were saved. What does it say in Ephesians 2? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of your own, but the free gift of God. Lest any man should boast. So God comes up to, to, comes up to each one, comes up to Eleanor and says, Eleanor, you have to have faith to trust me. And Eleanor goes, I don't have the faith. And Jesus goes, not a problem. Here's the faith. And he said, but you're telling me I'm justified By what you gave me freely. Yes. I'm giving it to you freely. And because you've received it and accepted me, you're justified. But that's too good to be true. There's nothing of me in that except I just received. That is the entire walk. We will always be that way. And Jesus said this over and over. When you're brought in front of the magistrates, don't worry about what you're going to say in that hour My father will give you the words. When he talked to Moses, Moses said, I can't speak. You've got the wrong man. What did God say? I'll be there. Now to God, it's all, am I there or not? To us, it's what's your plan? Let me look at the seven steps, see if they're reasonable, practicable, and don't cost me a considerable risk. That's not God. God is, I'm there. If I'm there, we're going. He called Abraham. He didn't call Abraham out and say, let's go 130 miles to the northwest to a land that could be flowing with milk and honey if we get there in time. No, he called Abraham out of Ur to follow me. He didn't know where he was going, except he was following God. And that's what he calls us to. You don't know where you're going. You just think about the last two years if you thought you knew where you were going. Do you see that? but we know who we're going with, and that's the reason that we rejoice. We know who we're going with. Was it that song say, uh, there are many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. That could be a scripture. That's such a good song. Now, do you know what is, this is a, this is a, Question for Kristen. Kristen, do you know the number one selling Christian song of all time? That's a tough one, isn't it? You might want to think about what that would be. The number one Christian song of all time. And I don't think I heard it till about six months ago. That will give you another hint. The name of the song is I Can Only Imagine. And the song is by far the top song out there. And it's by a guy who was abused as a child, terribly beaten by his father over and over again, could never please his father, and his father was a drunk. He had no way to escape. He eventually could sing, got into a a play at school, and people started asking him to come to these different churches to sing. His father just said, you're a pansy, just played him down, kept beating him. And while he was singing, occasionally his father would tune in the radio to hear him sing at a particular church. But while he was tuned into the radio, right after he sang, the pastor would get up and preach. And he heard the gospel. And it turned his whole life around. He got cancer and died, but before he died, he was a marvelous Christian. And the Lord completely turned him around because his son singing got him to hear a sermon, which he would never go to church ever to hear a sermon. And God used it and completely transformed him. It totally changed this guy. And then he fell in. And this is, there's a movie on this. Helen and I have watched it. Helen's watched it twice. I've watched it four times. And so, um, but it's a really good movie. It's sad at the beginning, let me tell you. And there's a girl in it and everything. He marries his girl. It's real good. It's true. And and basically, At the end of it, the Lord gives him this song. Well, the refrain of this song is so good, this is what I want to share. The refrain says Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Now, what is so appealing about that? Well, what's so appealing like that is it's a perfect description of us meeting Jesus. And wherever Jesus is, there's life, there's hope, there's joy. And that's one of the reasons it's the top song. It describes Jesus. When I meet you, Jesus, what will I do? And it pretty much describes the things that I wonder whether I would do it or not. Will I fall at your feet? Will I sing hallelujah? Will my mouth be shut because I'm so awed? And it's a great, great song. Well, the great part of this is the focus on Jesus immediately resonates within us. So we need to be careful. We don't get involved in religious things like he said in Colossians 2. New moons, the Sabbath. This other stuff, don't get into arguments about this. Let your focus be on the Christ. Let your focus be on Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, Paul says, I am afraid, lest as the enemy deceived Eve, you will be deceived from simple and pure devotion to Jesus. He said, I am afraid you're going to be deceived from simple and pure devotion to Jesus. Now, simple and pure devotion does not mean it's not deep. Uh, My mom's not doing well now. I don't know if she'll make it another couple weeks. But all the time I was growing up, my mom's love was simple and deep. And if I had a problem, I could go right to my mom. And 100% of the time, there were open, hugging arms and a waiting lap. A hundred percent of the time. Mom never said to me, you've used up your three hugs this week. Get out there and bear it on your own. Nope. Every single time I went to my mom, there was a hug and love and caring. A hundred percent of the time. And life was simple to me. If you got in over your head or it was hurting, you went to mom. Simple and deep. The Bible says unless we come as a child... We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If we come to God day after day saying, you've got to do it this way. You have to explain to me why that happened. If you don't explain to me why it happened, I'm not going back to church. If you don't explain to me why it happened, I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm not going to witness for you. I'm going to hold back my tithe. Those are ridiculous. Those are ridiculous. When we come to him, he is altogether deep. He's deeper than we can possibly imagine. And in him are all the promises of God. Ephesians 1, 3. In him are all the promises of God. So the enemy wants to keep us doing religious things, but to keep our eye and our love from being in the Christ. Now, what if I was with my mom all morning, and we were doing things all morning, and I never spoke to her? Would she be hurt? she would surely be hurt. How often do we go all morning and not talk to the Lord? He means for our walk to be much more intimate, much closer than we have been. Now, in fairness, there's 600 million things pulling us in 80 directions. You know, there was a parable about that. And Jesus said that the people who get to growing in him, that there will be vines and thorns that go around them that choke out the word so that we don't reach the maturity we're supposed to reach. And what did he say those vines and thorns were? He said they were the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. I think in here we're pretty good on deceitfulness of riches. I hope so. But the cares of the world can choke out that relationship. So what does that mean? Well, it means God knows we have cares, and we still need to make sure we're putting him in the front and talking with him and being with him and bringing everything to his attention and loving on him. I hate to say it, but we've had a dog over at our house for a week that's my, my youngest daughter's dog. And it's a gold, what is it, Helen? A golden doodle. Does that mean anything to people in here? I didn't know what these things meant, but it's a nice-sized dog with a lot of curls around it, like a, 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 I don't know, like a poodle, I guess. So anyway, that dog, in this past week, between me and Helen and Stephen, which would be mostly Helen and Stephen, has received unbelievable loving. You know, a dog comes by, I will pat it on the head, rub it a little bit, I've done my duty. But that dog comes up to Helen, picks up his paw, puts it on Helen's knee, saying, I love you. And Helen just loves on that dog. It's probably three to four minutes of loving on that dog. Do you all know what I'm saying? And Stephen is doing the same thing. Does that dog like to be at our house? That dog loves it at our house. It is a haven. It is a wonderful, wonderful place. That's a dog. If we can so love a dog... How much more does our Heavenly Father love us? Do you see? It's in a different plane. And we can't go up and say, I've just got too many things to do today. God can shorten the way things are. He can make your schedules work out more efficiently. The stupidest thing is not talking to Him and being with Him. And so we have got to schedule time. We have to make time. We have to make time. We need to invite Him in what we're doing in the day. And be willing to change. And so Jesus is the substance. He is the real thing. And we only know about him. We're going just a little bit deep in knowing him. We really only know about him. Once we really get to know him, we don't pray prayers like, Lord, don't forget this. Lord, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Because we know he hasn't forgotten that. He's been with us all the time. The most encouraging words in the Bible are, and lo, I will be with you always till the end of the age. Do you believe he's with you? He is with you. Do we talk to him like he's with us? No, we don't. We kind of talk to him a little bit. I'm not trying to be, I'm mostly talking to me. This is things about me. I'm not talking at anybody, but this is what's held open. Then we're a light to the world. Then, Eleanor, we're salt to the earth. Then we naturally are those things. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we give you glory and give you thanks and praise, and we bless your name. You're altogether worried, worthy of glory and thanks and praise and blessing. You are altogether worthy. Take the parts of our lives that are mixed up, not going down the right channels or problematic and fix them and we give our hearts to you that you work in us to both will and to do of your good pleasure in order that you may be glorified that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in jesus blessed name amen